Welcome to the Hope and Health Podcast, where we will explore health and wellness topics that shape our everyday lives. On this first episode, we bring on Dr. Nolan Klein, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Rollins College, and we will dive into health on a global scale and some of the socioeconomic impact from that. So just sit back and enjoy the show. Uh, so please welcome uh, Dr. Nolan Klein. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so um, can, uh, let me... Uh, the 12 listeners that we have. <laughs> uh, uh, tell me something, uh, a little bit more about yourself so they can get to know you. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Rollins College. I also co-coordinate our global health program. So my background is both in medical anthropology and public health. Mm-hmm. So anthropology, a lot of people instantly think you must study bugs or dinosaurs. Right. Not true. Uh, <laughs> so I study people and culture. Mm-hmm. And as a medical anthropologist, I'm interested in how people get sick in the world and how um, the social world makes people sick. So this um, connects nicely with my public health background, and all of my work has been related to what's called the social determinants of health. So we all know that your genetics can play a role in whether or not you get certain diseases. We all know certain behaviors can play a role in whether or not you get diseases. But the thing people often miss is that the social world plays a really big role in determining whether or not we stay healthy. So my background has always focused on uh, social determinants of health, particularly looking at um, issues related to Latinx populations and also human papillomavirus. What have you seen specifics that affect health? Because you said socially, so I didn't... um, I'm new to all of this, so I'm not sure uh, what... I can have an idea what social aspects affect uh, health, but what have you seen as like the big detriment of, is it a, are you starting from the, from like, are you starting behind if you are born in a certain situation? Like how does that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think a really, a way to sort of um, provide an example of what I mean by that is actually my very first encounter with thinking about social determinants of health. And this happened when I was an undergraduate student at Rollins. Um, I was really interested in farm worker health issues. So I met up with Jeannie Economos at the Farm Worker Association of Florida. And Jeannie and I went into a small building with dirt floors, no running water, and no electricity. This building was only powered um, through this extension cord that led outside the building to another building. Um, And I sat next to a man who was missing a leg. And so I started chatting with him. Um, and I wanted to, I was asking him questions and he ended up telling me what happened to his leg. So he was a farm worker for decades. And one day while working in the fields, he scratched his leg. He didn't have health insurance um, and he couldn't afford to go to a doctor. So he didn't do anything about the scratch. He continued working in the fields and As was common at the time, he was routinely sprayed with pesticides while working in the fields. Um, Uh, Is that, well, I'm I'm sure it's not inflicted on him by someone else. Uh, How does, like, is it just, I'm not sure how the farm work goes this day. Once I read it in a book and it's like, you're just in the field. How does that look, what does that look like? So crop dust or airplanes will, like, pass through the fields and then dump pesticides onto people who are still even in the fields. It, that's oh, and that's interesting, um, and only because it's it's somewhat of kind of like the warfare tactic that was a way for them to uh, just combat 
um, the enemy at that point. It, 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 it's interesting that it's similar. Well, and it, you know, the fact that it sort of harkens up this warfare image, I think is quite appropriate because it's really horrific that we would be doing something to people who are um, working to feed our population. Right? Yeah. So this guy's scratch ended up becoming infected. He, again, doesn't have health insurance, or didn't have health insurance, and had no money to go see a doctor. His infection got so bad that eventually his leg turned black and blue, and he went to the emergency room, and he had to have his leg amputated. Mm. So here's a guy who ends up getting his leg amputated because he doesn't have the money to see a doctor, and he doesn't have health insurance. But what's the root cause of those problems? It's his labor, right? right. The labor he engaged in put him in that situation. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the social determinants of health, I'm thinking of things like the kinds of economic situations people are put in because mm -hmm. of the world in which we live, right? Yeah, is that and more than that, not just that, but there's one example, right? So I mean, so it could be so so example. So it is uh, basically the work conditions that you're put in um, just to provide for your family. Um, is it also like, and and without getting too political, is it uh, just a kind of a systematic issue of of um, like so before um, President Obama enacted the Affordable Care Act, where um, it gave access to. Um, people who wouldn't have access before, mm -hmm. um, would that system or the system that's happening, that, that is in Europe, um, would that be a, benefic a beneficial thing to have for those workers that maybe their employer can't provide them that, but yeah. um, a government entity can? Yeah, and this is a really good example. So health insurance and, and who provides health insurance, right? So when we look at countries across the world that have a state-funded health insurance program, we typically see much better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S., people live shorter, sicker lives than any other nation, developed nation, right? And we also spend more money on health care than any other developed nation. So we spend the most and we get the crappiest outcomes. Um, and all of this is very much related to social determinants. And so social determinants could be things like, you know, the kind of economic system that we're participating in or the kind of labor we participate in. But it can also be, frankly, experiences of racism and living in a racially stratified society. Um, so if you're someone who gets followed around in the store because you're suspected of perhaps being more likely to more likely to steal something than another patron, that triggers a, a stress response, and that stress response over long periods of time, when it's cumulative and happens consistently, mm -hmm. um, ultimately affects your health. Is that more? Uh, is is there a, is this a demographic that's more susceptible to feeling that than one other? Because I know example for me when I was in college. Um, Actually, the public says, like, right down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, not going to give names, but uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to get arrested or anything. Or, um, but I had a friend who worked at that mm -hmm. store, and um, I was waiting for him uh, to get off break because we were going to go hang out once uh, mm -hmm. he came off work. And uh, I went into the store because I was sitting in my car. I had nothing to do. Um, and this is really before kind of like the iPhone mm -hmm. age really popped. Mm -hmm. um, I went in the store just walked around, and then um, he texted me. Uh, he's like, yeah, uh, my manager thinks you're stealing or you have, a, you have a crew with you and you're waiting to rob the store. I'm like, interesting. Mm -hmm. And she's like, how did she figure that? She, and he responded, oh yeah, she, uh, went, she followed you out of the store and try to look at where you were parked. She said that you had people waiting. I'm like, how did she figure that one? I, I, I talked to no one when I walked into that store. Yeah. Um, but is that like. So you and so I, I bring that up because it's um, one. It's kind of a, it's a 
it's a way to look at people of color uh, yeah. and think of them as uh, being doing as doing something wrong, even though yeah. there, there is no like anything to make that credible right. assumption. Uh, is that type of behavior or something that were you saying that something if it's done over time will eventually lead you to um, your health deteriorating because of it, or is it yeah. more of extreme cases? No, so so I guess to your first question. To, you know, which populations are most affected by this kind of a stress response. So people who are phenotypically seen as racially non-white, right? So people okay. who, are, who are red as non-white, this mm -hmm. is the population that's affected by these kinds of judgments most. Um, mm -hmm. And then people who, are, who um, are seen as being of a lower socioeconomic status and therefore more likely to engage in that. So um, the way this works, and this, you know, the, the theft example is just one example of, of numerous, right? Because mm -hmm. there are numerous studies that show, for example, if you have um, a non-white sounding name on a resume, you're less likely to get that job that you're applying for than a white person, right? right? Or a person with a white sounding name. So um, what happens, the way this, this all works is that moment that you're being followed in the store. How did, so let me ask you this. How did you feel? How did you react when your friend told you this, that the manager thought uh, you were stealing? Well, I, was, I, well, I was 20 at the, no, 19 probably. Um, I was a little more combative to that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what I did was, and this is very petty of me, mm -hmm. um, I walked back into the, I, I, found out who she, I found out who she was. He told me the name. Mm -hmm. Um and kind of gave me a description of what she looked like. So I went back into the store and I went to go buy something. Um, and I went, try to find where she kind of, she was in the, in the store. Um, and I noticed like she had been kind of like lurking mm -hmm. around the, uh, around the aisles. And when I went, I went to go buy a box of cereal, just sort of some random item, um, just to show her, get the money. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went back and found her behind the behind the registers. Um, and, and my, she's like, did you find everything okay? I'm like, oh, yeah, I have bought this with my own money. Uh, and it kind of, like, took her back a little bit um, because I didn't want to explicitly tell her, hey, I know you've been following me. I, I know people in this store who yeah. can tell me this. Uh, but it was, um, it's uncomfortable uh, just because I never conducted myself in a manner that would make me suspicious for anything. Yeah. Um, so it, it was... I was taken aback because it's it's like how like how do you put two and two together? Right. Um, but but in, in in my own education and what I've grown to study, it's, we all have our pre pre um, position biases. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just it just it just is. So um, an example: some people may feel uncomfortable if there is a black man in a hoodie just walking. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. may not be doing anything. Right. But on the same token, I may feel a similar type of effect if I see a white male with all tattoos, mm -hmm. similar dress, um, also walking in the street. I might feel a predisposed um, feeling whether I want to do that intently or mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's and it, and it's not uh, anything that we are born to believe sure. uh it's it's cultural it's how you're brought up it's the friends you surround yourself with sure um it's just your surroundings because you kind of just follow the group that you're most accepted by and that's how you lead your life essentially it's just, it's just a passed down thing it's yeah. basically what i'm getting to so this moment you had at Publix, right, or whatever grocery store that was, um, this pissed you off, right? Oh like, yeah, is no. that fair to say that this really made it made you angry? Oh yeah, and and it was one of the f one of the first times that I could really 
I understand what that felt like. Um, uh-huh. I don't think, I mean, and and in, in my, when my parents moved here and they moved from different countries to the United States to build a better life for themselves, mm-hmm. they've experienced um, that racism before. Yeah. Uh, an example, my father, when he worked um, at Greyhound, mm-hmm. uh, he had a coworker, and it was funny because they actually became kind of good buddies. Um, he he made a comment to my father saying, you and your uh, expletive Puerto Rican kids uh, coming to the country to take our jobs and, and this, that, and the third. Um, Never mind the fact that Puerto Rico is like part of the United States, or the fact whatever. That, or the fact that he's not even Puerto Rican. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> So, and, 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 my, my, and my dad is a special kind of petty sometimes. So what he mm-hmm. did was when my second oldest brother kind of was a teacher's assistant at, at UCF, and he was actually teaching English mm-hmm. uh, to um, undergraduate students, uh, my dad came back to, the, to, the, to his co-worker and was like, hey, my expletive Puerto Rican kid is teaching uh, you Americans English. Uh, and and that kind of, and that caused kind of awesome. like the like the shut the hell up man uh, <laughs> kind of feel and, and it's funny because they actually became kind of even though the guy was a was might not have been like the most accepting person in the world they actually became good friends because because uh, my dad actually got him back yeah um, and, and my dad gets along with a lot of people so it's 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 interesting to find that he even though he that happened to him he was still open to like having a relationship with that gentleman yeah um and kind of breaking down that kind of racial barrier and they'd invite him to his house and oh my God. they'd get they'd go out get dinner and stuff and it was just they became buddies um wow. and, and it's something that i don't think i see today as much as i as it happened because yeah. that was like happened like in the 70s wow so and my dad's a very older gentleman, so. <laughs> so if we if we take that moment, right? So if we take your example and your dad's example, these moments of um, having someone at the store suspect you of something off of no real evidence, right? right? There's no reason for you to be suspected of stealing. And if we take a moment like your father experienced, like a coworker who just blatantly exercises uh, racist sentiment, right? And if we add this up throughout the day, right, you have this this response when these things happen. Um, typically, the response that's triggered is is an anger response, but it's a stress response. These mm-hmm. moments are very stressful. Your body releases a, um, um, a hormone called cortisol, and that is your stress chemical. Um, we know that cortisol is associated with a no- higher levels of cortisol is associated with a, a large number of health problems, uh, right? So hypertension being one. Um, so if we take these moments and we add them up day after day, week after week, month after month, mm-hmm. year after year, you end up having a cumulative stress response that increases your likelihood for a whole host of adverse health outcomes, right? So including cardiovascular disease or delivering premature babies if you're a woman, right? Um, so when we think of this moment, this, this moment of racism that people feel, it's not only just that you're feeling it, but there's a biological response. And over time, that biological response adds up to something very negative in the long run. Is there anything that can combat those uh, things, or is it is it just a, a matter of the society we live in, or the people that you just happen to be around at those times, or 
uh, or yeah. is it is it just a way of life? Um, how do you, how does one combat those things? Because I because uh-huh. I know at least from um, from a family who came from an uh, immigrant family, basically yeah. uh, who came here legally, did the whole thing, mm-hmm. and experienced their own levels of poverty, yeah. uh, racism, uh, barriers to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, they found a way to overcome those things and build a good life for them, build a good life for their kids. Um, and how does one get past that? Like that, that's a barrier that we'll face. Um, and it's not going to stop until there's a change in a whole change in mentality. Um, but how does one get through that? Well, you know, I think part of it is let's work towards that change, right? Let's work towards the changing, um, the racist sentiments we might see, or even the resurgence of, white supremacy in our own country, right? Like, this is crazy. So, you know, yeah, it might be a long fight, but let's fight it. (laughs) Like, let's do it. Um, And let's all participate in it. So, so, you know, there's one answer. The other answer, so that's sort of my, like, anthropology answer. Well, let's fight against this crap, right? But then my public health answer, I guess, is probably one more of, well, there are these things called protective factors. There are Mm -hmm. things you can do in your life to help mitigate some of these risks. So, Mm -hmm. you know, surrounding yourself with people who support you and having a supportive environment, um, that's a way of, of mitigating some of these um, these problems that, that exist and, and in many ways, as you're pointing out, are inescapable. Um, so I sort of take this two-pronged approach. Like, we can try to protect ourselves against this stuff, mm-hmm. um, but we should also be fighting against it if possible. Not, not everyone can, right? Is so, there anything in the medical community, the community that can help uh, negate those negative factors? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, and, and I bring that up uh, and just because there's... There, because we're going because the next topics of well what we uh, what hope and help does it with HIV and then um and then topics of HPV and, and herpes and things that are stigmatized and usually affect a population that is um, susceptible to the uh, social detriments of health um, is is there anything that that the medical community can do to just kind of navigate help them navigate that in a way that's gonna be more positive and kind of get them out of the mentality that Oh, um, I'm in. I'm a poor Hispanic man, mm. ha- and it's hard for me to get access to healthcare, food, yeah. jobs, and things like that. Is there anything that they can do when they're going to their physicians or mm. healthcare providers um, to kind of push them into the right direction? Yeah. So, um, well, if we're thinking of what could a medical community do, first and foremost, a medical community could certainly be open to the diversity of its of its patients, right? So. Um, this is something I think that, that in Orlando we're being a little more attentive to, mm-hmm. right? So recognizing that, for example, providers need to have um, a greater understanding of the diversity of Latinx patients that they might have, mm-hmm. um, and and perhaps even have basic language training, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to communicate in Spanish. So having providers who are able to communicate with patients and understand their patients is certainly important. Um, from the patient perspective, right, being able to find organizations that provide health services and also provide social support is important. Mm-hmm. So, and by social support, I mean, you know, places where you, you sort of feel like people are like you or understand you or get you or um, at least know where you're coming from. Um, and this is, you know, this is something that's really crucial for um, people to at least feel like they have a place where they can get care when they need it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
they it's, it's good to know the resources so everyone knows where to go how can they now break out of the social barriers so yeah. and the stigmas yeah um because there's a stigma if you're poor there's a stigma if you're hiv positive mm-hmm. there's a stigma if you got herpes or mm-hmm. a stigma if you got hpv or and actually um and and to get on that hpv in, in comparison to what we do is in caring for hiv how has that um virus and disease kind of become more of a public health thing yeah. and not so much the stigma i mean there is yeah um but not so much the stigmatized um barriers that you would see with hiv patients now how did that get to the point where it's a public health issue hmm, good question so um so hpv human papillomavirus um is a sexually transmitted infection um, and it causes a number of cancers, right? So it causes anal, vaginal, um, has, there's a causal connection between oropharyngeal cancer and HPV, penile cancer, cervical cancer, right? So I think one of the things that, that resulted in human papillomavirus not being so stigmatized, and it's still stigmatized, but certainly not to the degree of, of other STIs, um, I think one of the things that, that resulted in HPV not being so stigmatized is um, the concerted effort from public health community, from the public health community, and from uh, pharmaceutical companies to advertise interventions like the, the HPV vaccine as a cancer prevention vaccine, which it is, right? So um, the, uh, the vaccination for human papillomavirus can indeed prevent the cancers that, call, that are caused by HPV. Um, now there are lots of, there's still some problems with this, right? right. So uh, most people think HPV and they think of cervical cancer and they think that HPV is a woman's disease. Not true. I mean, that's all I could find when I was trying to research all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that is not true, right? So HPV absolutely can cause cancers in men and does, it does right. cause cancers in men. Um, and in fact, uh, for men who have sex with men, right, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have actually suggested a longer age, a longer um, age range for uh, vaccination. Uh, so typically, you know, the recommended vaccine period is 14 to 26, um, and that, that's when, so around age 14 is when the um, shots can be most effective. You can start as early as nine, and then the catch-ups until age 26. For men who have sex with men, the CDC has recommended that that go until, I think, age 30. They can't quite remember now. Right. Um, so, yeah, men are affected. Um, I'm going on a tangent now. What was your original question? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, my, my original question is, how did it get to the uh, to a normalized public health thing where yeah. it's like, oh, uh, I need to get my kids the, the vaccine because I don't want them to uh, get HPV down the road. Right. Um, how did it get to the just like, oh, like, okay, so for example, um, if, if someone says I'm HIV positive and uh, your immediate thoughts are, did you sleep with another man? Right. Did you have anal sex? Did right. you uh, never use a condom? Um, yeah. Did you do drugs? Uh, there, there's, there's immediate, like, there's some judgmental thoughts that go into that, yeah. um, and then there are thoughts, especially if you come from a from a community or a group of people that kind of never seen, uh, never never really had the struggle of uh, kind of climbing out of poverty or climbing out of um, barriers to 
finances, health, whatever you may call it, um, there's a there's a there's a perception that's that it's still a white gay male disease, mm-hmm. even though Magic Johnson has it. Um, some prominent porn stars have it, mm-hmm. and even then, if it's because they're a porn star, they're an adult worker, they uh, already get oh because you do that for work. That's how right. you got it. It's um, an occupational risk. Even though, even though statistically speaking, sex workers that are in those industries, yeah. and if they're in the right people, uh, they are probably they're cleaner than the normal population um, by far. Um, how can something like HIV get to that point where it's where it's like? And this is, and it's interesting. Um, and I'm, I'll get to a question, a question eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because HIV is not like other STDs, STIs. That, um, it doesn't. It's not like something you see. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's untreated, you'll mm-hmm. see a sudden an increase in weight loss. Uh, sure. Your immune system is basically compromised. Um, but if someone is under medication and it's living a healthy. Um, eating the right foods, taking their medication, seeing the physicians, uh, doing all those things, mm-hmm. and they are HIV positive, you wouldn't tell. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't like in the 80s when they came up and you'd see people not having the medical uh, sign, the, the medical advancements mm-hmm. to take care of themselves, and you'll see them just becoming basically stick figures, suffering yeah. in hospitals. And then Ryan White was the big example where it was just a bad, got blood that was yeah. uh, infected already. It, how did, how does that get to a point where it's like, oh, um, I need to show my kid uh, maybe safer sex practice. I need to uh, help people in the medical field not um, how to make that more of a common test. Because mm. um, even at some points, if you come into the ER um, and they take your blood, that's not usually something they're testing for. Yeah. Just like in most uh, in some uh, OBGYNs and uh, other places, if you get your pap smear, you don't get tested for herpes. Sure. It's kind of like, how do we normalize these things so it's sure. kind of just like a preventative health thing instead sure. of a like, a like a value, oh, you, what you do? What you do, yeah. right. Well, I think first and foremost, I mean, you know, sexual health tests of all kind just need to be part of our routine physical health examinations, right? right. Um, you know, I mean, and I remember this. I remember sort of experiencing exactly what you're talking about when I went for an annual exam and said, by the way, I want an HIV test. And my provider is like, are you doing something high risk? I was like, no, but it should be, right? And who cares? Like, you know, yes, I guess the public health side of me is like, oh, I guess you should ask these questions because, like, let's mitigate whatever high risk behavior. What? No, but, like, the point is that these things should be routines so, so that we can reduce some of these stigmas right i mean it, um, it, it's it's it, yeah it's interesting that they that they went there that oh, they yeah. went there because yeah. there are and and contrary to popular belief there are people who have hiv that didn't was never their fault at all they were born uh they were born they were become hiv positive because of their parents it passed on it could have been um just it, it may not have been their fault they probably just blood was exposed yeah. was exposed to blood that was um had the virus in it uh it may not even be drug use or sexual right based so it's it's, it's interesting that he went there with oh, yeah. that uh that it's still the whole oh like what, what you do what you do well and frankly i mean and the other thing is we shouldn't be making judgments about people's sexual activity regardless right like who like like this is actually one of the the biggest problems i think like we should not be making judgments about, about anyone's sexual health practices mm-hmm. but there's that um but i think with H, you know even with hpv though there's still a lot of stigma so um 
there are people who don't want to vaccinate their children for HPV because um, they don't like the fact that it's associated with sexual activity. And I think really? this is, yeah, oh yeah. So you see enormous HPV vaccine exemptions uh, because people don't want to, um, they think that, you know, if they vaccinate their kids for HPV, then it means that they're giving their children permission to have sex. And of course, a parent doesn't want to think like, okay, well, my nine-year-old will one day be having sex, but newsflash, one day, your nine-year-old's going to be an adult who's going to be having sex. So you know, I think that what we're seeing here is this, this bigger judgment about sexual activity, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we shouldn't be making judgments about people regardless of status of anything, um, and, and to go back to an earlier question, I think that's probably something the medical community could improve on, right? Like, we, we need to be making judgment-free kinds of uh, care. Or, like, incorporating it into normal health, preventative health practices. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had, we, there were probably a couple times in our old office, especially where um, we, we were around, like, uh, a couple high schools and a couple schools. Um, people would know what we've been since we were there for, like, a couple, like, almost 20 years at that point. Um, where kids would come in and they would just take condoms out of the condom box that's in the lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, some, what, like a couple parents would be like, how dare you give my kids condoms? And it's like, well, how dare you not give your kid condoms? Right. Uh, and like, like, why don't you have the conversation with them yeah. instead of them learning it from their dumb friends or who don't know any better or the internet that is already, uh, just making, putting, making everything, uh, even bigger than what it is. Yeah. Um, seriously, like like in movies or media where uh where sex is what's commonly used to sell and it's a, it's an effective practice but right. then when if someone's consuming that's time and time again they're gonna think that cat calling women is okay that uh if she's dressing if she's dressing provocatively she wants it or uh if um or just developing social normal normalities that uh that they'll think is okay or they'll think that uh, if they have sex, but they'll come up and miss. So I, and, I, and I went to Catholic school, so this is funny. Um, <laughs> uh, that I had one kid, uh, we, had, we had a sex class, and, and ironically, um, it was a, a, a nun who was teaching it. Hmm. Great teacher, fabulous woman. Was it abstinence only? You know, sex, sexual health? I couldn't remember oh. if it, well, I know we never put a condom on a banana or anything okay. like that. Um, <laughs> uh, I just remember I didn't really understand what was happening um it was uh i got i got the basic information and i think my personality is just such where i just take the basic information and i just figure everything else out because mm. um i had parents that were very uh forward thinking mm-hmm. um for very for traditional for traditional parents they're forward thinking on some things mm-hmm. um so when it came to like religion and sex and things like that, they kind of just thought forward a little more. Uh, so in those times, I was just, I got the gist of it, but I kept, I kept moving forward. But there was one time, this was in eighth grade, I think, where we were having the discussion in our religion class. And this kid, and he says, if I have sex with a girl in the church, uh, she won't get pregnant. Like we had a, we had a comment box and we put one kind of, it's like, if I have sex with, with someone in church, um, she can't get pregnant because she's in church. Right. And she, <laughs> and I was like, what the heck did this kid just write? It's like, it, it, it it's kind of like, I don't know where you get that from. Um, but 
even in eighth grade when we were like 14 and stuff like we're always trying to think about that yeah uh, if if no one's there to start teaching them the the know-how of um about sexual education in general um then they're going to start believing some things that aren't true or right. the pull-out method is effective or right. uh, uh maybe if i just wrap my uh my penis in uh the the plastic wrap uh, instead right. of a condom right um wow. that'll be effective or for even even if we're out in the community and someone and this is a phenomenon that i found in orlando mm. uh if you have condoms out everyone wants a magnum like huh. every single person is big <laughs> every single person needs that they want the gold pack that's what it is uh and, and the fact of the matter is that that's kind of like the average is not that size at all um and, and it's actually, I put you more at risk if the condom's loose to pregnancies yeah. and other things. Yeah. Uh, so you like you may want to impress your friends about uh, getting even women actually like yeah I need the magnums. Uh, so it, it's it's a phenomenon that people don't get that education first and kind of just like kind of be more transparent with themselves. Yeah. Um, that it, it it's just a phenomenon that I that I found especially working here where we're exposed to all of this stuff all the time that people uh, just lack education on that or even um, proper use of a condom. Oh yeah. Um, so people, I had a gentleman, uh, he, he was like in his forties, fifties or something like that. Um, we gave him a condom and we had lube packets uh, with it. He's like, he's like, Oh, I don't, I don't need lube. Uh, she's already, that's what, that's what she's there for. I'm like, I'm like, true. So my, one of my, my coworkers was, um, was like, yeah, that is correct. But as you get older, uh, your body changes and yeah. you can't produce all that stuff as yeah. much anymore. So that's why you, it's kind of be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, it, there's just some some discrepancies on what people learn and like what pop culture has showed you sex is like um, that kind of yeah. prevents people from taking the preventative measures, measures of protecting themselves and protecting others. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just a fascinating thing. And I feel like that should have been corrected or been taught early on that how to wear a condom how to have how to communicate with your partner and their big one um if you and there's really not much i mean orange county and florida is is abstinence based in general yeah um but there is but even if it wasn't i feel like that there's a barrier in the pro sex education where yeah. it's uh they'll teach you they'll teach you how to not um contract STDs, mm-hmm. um, even the ones that you don't get STDs based off fluid contact, you can get it from skin, sure. um, that if you, if you become positive for that, what do you do next? Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah. so there's some, there's, there might be some things where, I don't know, I don't, and I don't know the specifics of all education about it, but maybe if someone becomes HIV positive, they'll teach you how to not become positive, but then they won't teach you what are your, what are your, what's and your next move? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, you're just gonna just figure it out and yeah. feel alone and not know where to go, and then there's a whole scent, there's a whole like laundry list of mental stuff that will come after that, and trauma, trauma, um, and there's a lack of support mm-hmm. as well, especially culturally. So we go back to the social detriments of health, mm-hmm. um, where there's barriers um, just on the way you live, but there's also bar- cultural barriers as well, sure. um, where in a Hispanic community that's very religious in, in nature, um, very family oriented. There's cases where, uh, Latino men or uh, man or woman contracts a specific illness that is 
uh, based off this stigmatized based off sex, they're immediately accused of being this, that, gay, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. promiscuous, uh, unfaithful, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, that leads to a, you're ostracized from that group. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what do you do? Like, there's no, I haven't seen any, um, any what do you do next type of thing until they, it's almost too late, but then they find an agency like Hope and Help or, yeah. or another agency in Orlando that they can actually um, move forward with. Um, I kind of went on a laundry list. I'm no, that's fine. Stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, do you have anything to add to any of that? I think, but I think you're getting at a really, a few really important points, right? So when we think of social determinants, the communities in which we live absolutely shape our health. And a really good example here is the fact that Florida is an abstinence-only sexual health education state, right? Mm-hmm. And there are certain counties who have opted out of that standard. Um, but what does that do, right? It absolutely does not teach people how to have um, not only a, not only how to have sex and protect themselves against STIs and prevent pregnancy, but also how to talk about really important things like consent, right? right. Um, and as you point out, if you do get an STI, then what, right? And, you know, and again... Part of this missing information is how to protect yourself because, as you point out, certain STIs are skin-to-skin contact transmitted, mm-hmm. like HPV, right? So HPV also causes genital warts. Genital warts are, um, you know, transferred from person to person through con- through skin-to-skin contact. Um, so this is one of those big gaps that that we could certainly move to address in our own local communities, right? We could we could push county. Um, school board leaders to to have not only comprehensive sexual health education in, in our schools, but um, also promote positive uh, viewpoints about sexual activity in, in, in that sexual health curriculum. And I kind of want to get continue on this um, path, um, but then get into syndemics and, and yeah, where um, my favorite, <laughs> where or uh, I mean, can you explain for me and any of the listeners that we have uh, yeah. what is that? Because this is the first time I've seen it in like a like in a categorized term. Yeah. Um, but yeah, can you explain a little more? On yes. That? Okay. So there's this idea of syndemics. So just to give you a, a little bit of like a public health 101, right? So whenever there's a disease in a community and it's at numbers that we might expect to see, right, like a common cold around this time of year, you expect a lot of people are going to have it, that's called an endemic rate, right? So if it's if it's at the level you expect, it's endemic. If it's higher than the level you expect, that's mm-hmm. an epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. And so we know this from popular movies when, you know, some sort of zombie disease outbreak happens. Or historically the Black Plague or yes. uh, even the Zika virus to an extent or uh, what, what was it, swine flu? Or like, oh yeah, and you know I don't know I don't know if swine, yeah I don't know if it reached epidemic levels, but yeah yeah absolutely. But when the media made it look that way. Yes, right. So when you have a disease um, that exists in the population and rates higher than you would expect, that's epidemic. And when when the epidemic reaches a global scale, that's called a pandemic. Mm. A syndemic is when two or more diseases interact with one another. And the consequence of that interaction is greater than the sum of just having these two diseases. So what happens is you get one disease and then you get another and they mutually exacerbate the other, right? So they mm-hmm. mutually reinforce the, the, the effects of 
of both of them. Um, and in the aggregate, the consequences are much worse than if you were just to sort of have both diseases on their own rather than having them like interact. Like they just compound and then kind of just, it, become, it becomes just worse on you than, um, than just having the individual disease. Yes. yes. How, how does, um, is it, is it, and I think you might have touched on it, but is it just that because your immune system's already compromised by one, that the other one's just more likely to happen? Um, that could be part of it. And there are a lot of people who have looked at, at syndemics from that perspective. So a lot of people have looked at the syndemic interaction between HIV and other diseases, particularly tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, usually it is this sort of this concurrence of disease. Um, it could be because you already have a weakened immune system. There are other folks who have applied this concept to different kinds of settings. Mm -hmm. So in my own work, for example, um, I argue that there's a syndemic interaction uh, between oral health, poor oral health and um, labor-related poverty among migrant farm workers, right? So like here, I'm not looking at two biological conditions. I'm instead looking at a biological condition like um, uh, certain bacteria in the mouth or bacteria that cause oral caries and a social problem and okay. looking at how they interact to exacerbate one another. Um, so it depends, right? It's sort of a theoretical concept that people can apply in yeah. different ways. Is, is it, um, I'm going to try to, this is an, I, I just want to, I'm curious at this point. Um, yeah. For example, uh, there are people who die from, we'll say like, so an example is like age related illness. Mm -hmm. um, is that a, when they say it in those terms, uh, mm -hmm. is it because it's a, a syndemic issue, or is it, um, or is it just something that the individual virus has just overblown itself to cause yeah. that harm, or is it, yeah, is does it go in that direction? Yeah. Is that a term that they're using when they're when they're trying to identify syndemics to the community when they're promoting or showing that out? That's hard to say. Um, so I think, you know, I think a lot of public health researchers haven't really gotten on board with the syndemics idea. It's a relatively new term. Okay. Um, but what, what could be reported there is something that's called a comorbidity, right? So like um, if someone has something like HIV, they might also then be susceptible to a number of other diseases, right? right? And they might then get those other diseases. So then um, rather than knowing what specifically resulted in death, they just know that there was something related to this weakened immune system. Maybe it was one of these like various things. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is like there's this notion of proximal and distal causes of death or proximal and distal um, you know causes of something else, right? So like proximal is the thing that's most immediate that causes the outcome. The distal thing is the thing that caused the proximal thing, right? Um, so yeah, it would be hard to say what people are referring to in those kinds of situations. But. And, and my follow-up question is yeah. um, in relation to like uh, HPV or HIV or some other uh, virus that's, it's, it's treatable, but it's, it's kind of stays with you. Um, for example, like people with HIV, if they're undetectable, um, the CDC is now uh, yeah. approved that uh, as recognized that if they're undetectable, they're also untransmittable. Uh -huh. um, given you still need to probably just take the precautions anyways if you're going to engage in sex with someone else who's HIV negative because um, HIV is an immune system mm -hmm. disease is would it it may would it be like a subset of syndemics if the person um, who is negative either they may have a common cold 
Um, and then they're more susceptible to get HIV if they're having unprotected mm-hmm. protected sex, um, even though the person yeah. is. And I and I know you're not a, like yeah. HIV expert uh, yeah. in the field, but um, would that be something that's relatable to kind of a substitute of synthetics in a sense where you're already compromised, and then yeah. a potential other uh, virus can come and continue the issue? Yeah. So usually when we think of this idea, we're looking at the existing interaction, okay. not the potential for one right so like the idea that there are two or more um interacting conditions um because you know there's potential for for infinite interactions right right? right. so usually when we think of the of how to use this idea we're looking at something that's already occurring okay yeah all right so it's 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 all based on the individual not and cross between multiple individuals yeah and i mean but there are populations that are um that might have um, these kinds of interactions, right? So, like, the the best example is usually HIV and tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, I'm not an expert on that area, so right. we can't really talk extensively about it. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I kind of want to get into uh, this segment um, I'm calling In or Out. <laughs> uh, Isn't there a movie by that title with uh, Kevin Kline? Uh, as you know, In-N-Out Burger, um, which oh, yes. I've never tried. The West Coast, right? Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, you probably won't ever get to the east side of the United States. But Are you a fan of In-N-Out Burger? No, but I've heard no. great things. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, I, I could shamelessly plug all the great burger places in Orlando, but I want to get sponsored by them first. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, all right. So then off the air, tell me your favorite burger place. I will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if I'm not saying Best Burger Bar. Uh, ah. great. Oh, and Junior Columbia Burger. Very good Columbia burger. Oh, uh, when, when I went to USF, um, University of South Florida, go, go Bulls. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're where I did my PhD, my PhD. Uh, yes. I mean, we're um, in Knights Country, so we can't say that out loud. That's right. Oh, I kind of, I kind of do it uh, if I see someone wearing a bull shirt. Oh, I'm just flashing the sign. Oh, yeah. uh, and then they look at you all confused, and they're like, "What the hell?" Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "I'm just showing solidarity." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, when we were there, uh, we, me and my fraternity brothers, uh, it would be a common thing to just drive to Orlando go to junior columbia burger because it was that good and then just drive back what um because it was kind of that kind of feel um so okay. junior columbia burger if you want to sponsor um the hope enough podcast i would be more than welcome to accept that sponsorship right <laughs> well, there i'm gonna have to try this place all right <laughs> um and beth's burger bar Best great burger, burger. Okay. uh they have like four locations one in downtown orlando another one Ooh, are you sure you're not getting a sponsorship no i mean <laughs> I need to call Beth. Uh, you want to sponsor this too? I am open to this. Uh, um, but back to uh, in or out. Uh, this segment is basically going to. I basically search um, the best uh, platform, Google, uh, and just find odd uh, health news findings, studies that uh, find out if we're in, as in we support. We're down to have that happen. Um, or out as in that's a that's a solid no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't ever want to see this come to mm-hmm. fruition. Even though some of the stuff I read, the FDA has approved some of it. No. Um, so uh, we'll start with the first. Um, so that apparently the FDA has approved that a uh, has approved to move forward with the a digital pill um, that will uh, tell the doc the physicians um, if their patients have taken their medicine. Um, are you in or out on your doctor? Uh, or you ain't not taking a digital pill that will tell your doctor if you're actually taking your medication or not. Oh. Kind of gets to the into the big brother type of feel. Um, yeah. Oh. 
Oh, I mean, I guess I could see why this would be beneficial, but no, I'm out because <laughs> they don't need to. But no, because and what? So you're digesting something that's still gonna like notify yeah. your provider? I don't even know if it's digital. I don't even know if it's a physical pill. Maybe, oh, it might be a pill. Might be a pill with some some computer digital stuff within yeah, it, yeah, or it could be. I mean, I, I think we're getting at that. If you're getting to that point, you're getting to the to the time that you see in movies where you start paying everything with a little chip that they insert yeah. your, um, which actually I think may have been a year ago. That was something that was starting to happen at some yeah. place or some countries, um, where they implant a uh, a chip into your under your skin to just identify you. Yeah, um, yeah this, it, it, it's it's we're gonna get into technology's going is doing too much right now. Yeah. I think um, I'm out on that. <laughs> um, are, are you in or out on um, transplanting organs uh, made in pigs for humans? Made in pigs. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a thing out where. It, it would be a it would be a, a pig that um, didn't have any any uh, potential for diseases coming up within it, um, mm. but they would uh, kind of just create have inject them with uh, things that would make their organs usable for humans, mm. um, and if need be for an organ transplant, you mm. would get it from a pig versus another human who's now deceased. <sighs> Man, you know this is a tricky one because there's so many people who need organs but then on the other hand i don't really feel comfortable with saying that the pig's life only has value to be a farm for human organs so that's I, tricky and i would love to see what uh peter has to say has right? to say about this because they're huge on the uh on the don't abuse animals for right. any reason type of deal um i'm all about if we could like grow the the organs without using the life of another animal, that sounds great. But it seems a little crappy to use an animal just to uh, serve our own interests. Like Do you that, think? Because right? because there is another thing, I think it's in <clears throat> China or Japan or another country like that, where they can, um, say if you, have, you have a pet and you want to be able to, if the pet dies, you want to have like a, have something similar. Yeah. Um, there's a place, and, I, and, I, and it escapes me right now, but there's a place over there that, um, can take the stem cells of the animal and create like a duplicate. Oh, like clones. Yeah. Um, would something like that be something you're more in for as as far as? Well, I love my cat, and he's a little older. So if I could have another version of him, I probably would love that. So I think I'm probably in on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's good. Um, the next one, uh, and we started discussing about the photo more. This can be a huge. Uh, um, jar of worms that we're about to open right now but uh implanting thoughts into monkeys um so there was a, a i think it's a, a <clears throat> study um that would i guess the scientists wanted to find ways to just kind of uh negate uh kind of strokes and uh, mm -hmm. things that uh, cerebral uh, things that happen um and the study was to implant thoughts and into the minds of monkeys mm -hmm. or uh are you in or out on kind of that study going through um if you're asking me if i'm at if i'm implanting feelings and thoughts or energy i don't even know how you even do that um i know there's there's a chemical and there's there's, there's a neurological thing that goes to it and i'm not i'm not smart enough to know about all that um but i feel like if you just like from a 30,000 foot view i feel like i'm getting into planet of the apes category yeah or it won't be robots taking us over it'll be gorillas monkeys yes. and and and, and primates kind of just taking over because we just gave them that tool to do so. Well, and the fundamental question for me is, what right do we have to be 
implanting ideas into other animals, right? Like, what if, I mean, that just seems terribly disrespectful of the rights of the animal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I mean, I, I just kind of got into like a animal abuse segment with the last <laughs> uh, tried to I'll try to find better stuff and to more diversify but um, so you're I'm guessing you're out on implanting thoughts into yeah. monkeys yeah none of that okay yeah. next this emoji <laughs> right the like hands crossed right. emoji that. Um, yeah so nope. uh, Nolan or Dr. Klein uh, thank you, you for call me Nolan uh, <laughs> oh and I mean I'm, I'll be seeing you next semester because um, we're doing the project again with uh, the volunteers um, which were great uh would, were, they were really great this semester in, in mm-hmm. your global health class. Um, so what, um, if you have any uh, books, publications, social media, mm-hmm. anything to follow you, uh, do you have any, any plugs that you want to give out? Yeah, that's really nice of you. So um, I've actually just turned in my book manuscript woo, uh, to Rutgers University Press. So um, if you're looking for updates on that, you can certainly follow me on Twitter. Um, so at Nolan underscore Klein, I think. Maybe it's just at Nolan Klein. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's where I tend to sort of post updates about most recent work. Cool. Um, any updates on uh, what you, any projects for your, it's a global health, the global health group at Iran. Yeah. Like what do you guys plan for spring? Yeah, good question. So for the spring, just still trying to figure out what my epidemiology class is doing. But for my activism and social justice course, uh, students are going to be working with a number of different Orlando-based organizations looking at how they respond to pressing needs in our community, like providing HIV services. Um, they'll I'm particularly excited about that class and the kind of work that the students might be doing with Hope and Help because there's a great documentary called, um, oh God, how did I just forget? Uh, it's something about the plague. How to Survive a Plague, yeah. thank you, uh, which tells the story of ACT UP, right? This activist organization um, that emerged responding to the, the AIDS crisis um, in the United States and pushed for policy change. So I'm really excited to, to, excited to see the students connect what we'll be reading related to ACT UP, the film we'll be watching, and then also the local work happening here around HIV-AIDS. So yeah. that's really exciting. Um, and, and to kind of close on it, because um, I'm all about, I'm, I hate uh, the, the keyboard warrior mentality where mm. if there's a problem, we just have to type it on Facebook or on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. but there's no tangible movement towards it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what can people in Orlando do to kind of, progress social changes and health changes uh medical stuff what what tools have you seen kind of can be effective in Mm -hmm. and making that movement happen well i think we're really lucky in orlando at the moment to see a lot of organizations emerging to um fill gaps Mm -hmm. so i think after the the pulse shooting for example i think a lot of people realized we had enormous gaps uh, filling needs for LGBTQ plus Latinx groups. And so a number of organizations like QLatinx emerge to fill those gaps and to provide a space for people at this intersection, mm-hmm. uh, which is amazing. And we're seeing coalitions being formed, like um, the, the, Trust... zebra, the Zebra Coalition. Yeah, yeah, the Zebra Coalition, right? Um, the Trust Orlando Coalition mm-hmm. to um, provide support for immigrants. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think this is actually a really exciting moment for us in Orlando as we see a lot of social justice work happening and I would encourage people to, f- to find what they're interested in and get involved oh, yeah. because it will take all of our collective action to um, to, to make some progress. Oh, yeah. But I think we can do it. I can definitely compound on that that uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that happen in Orlando um, that don't always 
that sometimes go unnoticed. Um, So if if you want to conduct change in Orlando, there's a bunch of organizations that are doing that um, and do additional support, volunteer, uh, donations, anything that's going to help them progress that mission moving forward. Um, And I hope and help are definitely doing that too. Um, I'll even shamelessly plug what... um, (laughs) Uh, what we have on the horizons of our AIDS walk is in February 3rd. Um, I'd love to see your class and and I want to see Ron in general come out for that uh, just because uh, it'll be good to, as an institution to really move that, um, move the change forward as far as getting an institution like Rollins to back that and, uh, mm-hmm. and come out. So it's February 3rd. Um, tick, uh, registration tickets are $25. Um, if you want to become a vendor, um, the you, or vendor or sponsor, you can go on www.aidswalkorlando.org um, to learn more about how to get involved and uh, and get to know Hope and Help and what we do. Um, we're doing big things here, um, starting with this podcast, which I'm excited to to figure out because uh, uh, I love podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way for me to just pass the time when I'm driving mm-hmm. uh, and just just do interesting things. Um, so I want to thank you again for joining me. Um, thank you. And I thank you. Um, thank you for coming by today. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Remember to like subscribe and leave us a comment. Also, if you haven't done so register for AIDS walk Orlando Saturday, February 3rd, Registration is $25, and 100% of the proceeds go to Hope and Help to provide HIV care and services to the Central Florida community. Also, remember to like us on social media at Hope and Help CF. All right, see you next time.